Hello, Space Bees. I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. Today on the show, we are going to discuss a follow-up question about Hogwarts houses. I know everybody's excited about finding out what house Anna is in. We're going to talk about what media we've consumed recently, and then we're going to discuss three topics. Crimson Peak, Hocus Pocus, and The Family Plot by Sherry Priest. It's a Halloween episode, guys. Very spooky. So let's get into our very spooky Halloween episode. On a recent episode, I asked Anna what her Hogwarts house was, and she didn't really have a great answer. So, as part of a challenge to both of us, we went and took the Pottermore quiz to see what Hogwarts house we belong to, as well as what our Patronus is. Anna, don't keep us in suspense. What is your Hogwarts house? I don't want to say, which one is yours? Mine's a little different. In the early days of the internet, you know, back in the dinosaur years of 2000 to 2005, all those little sorting quizzes would pop up. And every time I would take it, I would always either get Gryffindor or Ravenclaw. Never failed. I never, ever got anything else. Most of them were actually Ravenclaw, so that's what I went with. Except the last episode, I, like, accused you of running full-heartedly into danger because you were in Gryffindor. And guess what house Pottermore gave me? Gryffindor. Yes, it did. Oh my god, I just, I can't. Renee, I'm Slytherin. What? Oh my god. I am not evil. I mean, I know there's this talk of, you know, it doesn't mean that you are evil, but come on, every single evil character from this series comes from fucking Slytherin. Now we all know that you have some evil tendencies. I guess I knew the moment that Pottermore asked me black or white and I answered black. I like black more than I like white. Why does that put me in Slytherin? Because you do have a penchant for world domination. Okay, true. Yes, true. Taya is in Slytherin as well. At least I'm not by myself, I guess. And we have the new characters from the new book, Albus Potter and Scorpius Malfoy. They are both Slytherin. Uh, Our pal Kate Taylor Ray is in Slytherin. So you're not alone at the lunch table. Yes, so another friend. So that we can all commiserate together and cry in this littering room where people will be just trying to kill us, I guess, because that's what Slytherins do for fun, probably. <laughs> that is so anti-Slytherin bias. <laughs> what what do you want me to say? That's like that's lots and lots of books. <laughs> Whereas Slytherin people are re- like They are literally thrown out of Hogwarts during the Battle of Hogwarts. (laughs) The whole world has an anti-bias. Do you know what I mean? I was in a state, I'll tell you. And also I have regrets because at the Harry Potter play, they had a lot of really cool Slytherin things and I didn't buy them because, you know, I didn't know. Had I known, I would have bought all of the crap. (laughs) 
So now we are mortal enemies. I guess so. We are on a podcast, and I'm a Gryffindor, and you're a Slytherin. I guess we have to end it here. Or we could be like a friendship Romeo and Juliet. That would be cool. We can heal the bonds. I know that you told me your Patronus was an Osprey. Yes. Well, I took that quiz, and I'm apparently a Manx cat. That's cool. So now you're a bird and I'm a cat. In true Slytherin form, I can eat you. Because an Osprey is big. Like, it's a bird of prey. Wonderful. I can definitely kill you. <laughs> the fact that my my mind went through this course of action immediately tells you something. That I am in the right place. Yes. Yes, it does. It's been a little while since we talked about the media we were consuming. So, Anna, what have you been reading or watching? I've been reading and watching quite a few things, actually. But in true Slytherin spirit, I'm just embracing this. I'm just embracing this side of me. I'm going to unrecommend something. I read Crosstalk by Connie Willis, and you all know how much I was looking forward to it because Connie Willis is one of my favorite writers. To Say Nothing of the Dog, Doomsday Book, they were all amazing novels. But this new one is shit as fuck. It's so bad. It's out of, it's about technology, but it's weirdly out of touch with technology. It tries to criticize social media and the amount of time that we all spend interacting with people, but none of the characters actually are in social media. It's just really, really weird. And the characters are all in their early 20s, quoting musical theater from the 60s, like like they are on right now on television. I mean, I love musical theater from the 60s, but it's I can't, I can't explain how weird it reads. There is this really strange thing about how Irish people has this gene, which is in fact actually true. But they use that to make them so special as to be pure. And when you talk about white people being pure, genetically speaking, it just raises all the flags for me. And I just couldn't keep reading that book with any semblance of seriousness. I understand that the book is a romantic comedy, but it also has really creepy guys, including the main romantic lead. The more I think about this book, the less I like it. So I am unrecommending it. That's serious. It's really bad. And I'm glad that I'm not the only one talking about it in in that way. A lot of reviews are starting to come out now with people saying the same things, which makes me a little bit more... You're validated. Congratulations. Thanks, Internet. I actually have this book out from the library right now, and I was going to read it, and then you're like, shit. So guess what's not happening? I'm not going to read it immediately. I'm going to read Gemina instead. Which is my next recommendation. It's the second book in the Illuminae Files by Amy Kaufman and Jay Kristoff. The elevator pitch for this book is Die Hard meets Aliens in space, inside a space station, 
with a warm hole in the middle that is starting to malfunction. So the space-time continuum could collapse at any moment. Meanwhile, these two kids, Romeo and Juliet, let's call them, they are from different sides of the tracks, but they need to get together and fight against these people who have invaded their home. It's freaky fantastic, guys. It's This series is just so good as a whole. And this second book, I think maybe it's even better than the first one. How is that even possible? I don't know. I really want this book. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> My library has had it sitting in cataloging for a week. And I just keep logging in to check. It's always like, in cataloging, one hold on first return copy. I'm like, get it out of cataloging i want it and it ends with such a cool tease for the next one too and then i read another science fiction novel another sequel to a favorite read from last year a close and common orbit by becky chambers the sequel to <laughs> i wanted this too <laughs> the long way to a small angry planet and it's as good as the other one very very different story but still about found families and very optimistic and hopeful fiction. And it has an AI and a clone and they become best friends in a way. It's really, really good. And the last of my things is I started watching a Netflix show. It's called Black Mirror. The third season just came out now and I heard really good things about it. And I started watching the first season. I watched one episode of season one and one of season two because I got lost somehow. And they are all independent episodes, three episodes per series. Each has a different premise and different actors and everything. And it's all very science fictional. And it's really interesting. It looks at society and the way that we interact with technology and with art. It's about being human in this day and age. And I'm not sure that I agree with the answers that the series find, but I'm really enjoying watching it. It's very thought-provoking. I don't think it's a Netflix show. I think it actually came out on some network, and now Netflix is just carrying it. Oh, okay. What about you? What have you been reading and watching? So two of my things, I haven't actually finished yet. I've only started them. The first is a book called Hidden Figures by Margot Lee Shetterly. It's going to be a movie uh, in December, actually. They moved it up about the women who helped the space race. What? You can look up the trailer because it's out. Wow. But it's also a book. The book is great so far. It's really, really interesting. And I'm super, super happy this is going like, to be a movie. The second thing that I'm working on right now is The Scorpion Rules by Aaron Bow. <gasps> Are you excited? Oh, my God. Have you started yet? Yes. Oh, my God. I don't know if I can take this remember remember i am slytherin the things that i could do to you are you giving me a warning about this book i am i not only do i have this book and i'm reading it i also have the sequel so if i like the first book i can go ahead and read the sequel immediately if 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 i if 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 i like the book i'm not done with it yet we don't know but if i like it i can go ahead and read the sequel because jenny has been like, super excited about me reading this series. So I'm going to make her happy and finish it, hopefully. Thirdly, I have finished a bunch of episodes of Xena, the Warrior Princess, because Claire and I are continuing our watch-along on Lady Business of the series. I'm currently watching episodes in Season 2, 
and of course Jockster's here. And I know a lot of people are telling me that later in the series Jockster's going to get better, but right now I'm just like, ugh. I have never watched any episode of Xena. It's very camp. A lot of ways, I think that if I wasn't watching it with Claire, I would not be able to watch it at all because I get embarrassed so easily. But because I'm watching it with her and we're talking about it and critiquing it, I can kind of have some distance from it and enjoy it for what it is and not worry so much about, like, sinking into the show and empathizing or, in this case, over-empathizing with the characters. And that's been really helpful. So I'm really glad she's taking the plunge with me to help me through the show. And lastly, my fourth media consumption item, which nobody, I think, is going to be surprised by, is endless political coverage. I think I have logged more cable hours in the last few weeks than I have in the past few years. Wow. And I watched the last debate, and I was so tensed in that last debate between Donald and Hillary Clinton that, like, when it ended, I had to, like... I'm like, I had to stretch because I was so, my muscles were so tense. And I got so mad because at the very end of the debate, he was like, what a nasty woman. I know. I saw, I saw clips from that and I just couldn't believe it. I just, I can't, I can't believe the things he gets away with. I just literally can't believe. I, I don't understand how he's still a candidate. His candidacy is the culmination of decades of Republicans trading their base to expect a certain kind of candidacy from a person. What the Republicans did not expect was for Trump to come along and basically hijack their train. And so now their base is out of control. The Republicans on the news may not be super thrilled. They may be very unhappy with what he's saying, but the base still supports him. I don't want to dehumanize them because obviously they have their own concerns and they've just been misinformed and lied to and had things twisted into a situation where they're just super distrustful of government and institutions. Okay, so what I want to know is how big is this base and can it carry him to the White House? According to 538, the base probably it's like 40 to 45 percent depends on the polls you're using and obviously polls can be inaccurate because polling is getting harder but... Like here, this is Trump country. Like there are a lot of Trump supporters here. Although it's really strange because a lot of people are like not being vocal and visibly supportive of the top of the ticket. Back in the previous presidential elections with McCain and Romney, there were signs and stickers and flags everywhere during election season. They were everywhere. But it's really rare right now to see a Trump-Pence sign anywhere. I think that's really indicative of how divisive he is, that a lot of people are going to support him, but they don't want to claim him. Yeah, it's a shameful secret, right? So that's what scares me, because if they, they are not proclaiming it, so maybe when they are asked in the polls, they don't say it out loud, then they will go and secretly vote for him and then he will win by a landslide and then we will all, I don't know. Luckily, he has insulted so many people. Like, if you think that the Latinx, Hispanic community is, are not mobilizing, if you think that the Muslim community isn't mobilizing, if you think women aren't mobilizing, because, like, he just stood on stage and, like, denied sexual assault after he just talked about performing sexual assault on a recorded videotape from 2005. 
And he stood on the stage and denied that he's ever committed sexual assault. I'm like, dude, 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 dude. And so, yeah, the media coverage I've been watching has just been super draining. And I'm super ready for this election to just happen and be over. But to end on, like, a positive note, apparently uh, Elizabeth Warren, who is a senator, is on the campaign trail. And I'm going to read what she said on the campaign trail. It's going around Twitter. And end on a happy note. Yay. We'll make you happy. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren says, Trump disrespects, aggressively disrespects more than half the human beings in this country. He thinks that because he has money, he can call women fat pigs and bimbos. He thinks that because he's a celebrity, he can rate women from one to ten. He thinks that because he has a mouthful of Tic Tacs, he can force himself on any woman within groping distance. Well, I've got news for you, Donald Trump. Women have had it with guys like you. And nasty women have really had it with guys like you. Get this, Donald. Nasty women are tough. Nasty women are smart. And nasty women vote. On November 8th, we nasty women are going to walk our nasty feet to test our nasty votes to get you out of our lives forever. Crimson Peak is a 2015 American gothic romance directed by Del Toro. Anna, did you like this film? I did. Okay, I was nervous. Okay, did you like the movie? I really, really liked this film. Although, on the other hand, I really love Mia Wazakowska a whole lot. I discovered her in Alice in Wonderland. I also really liked her in Jane Eyre. Ah! Even though I didn't like that movie at all, I liked her performance. That's where I saw her from. So for me, this was like a gothic romance horror success. I was super happy. I was like, ah, yes, this is exactly what I want from this kind of film. Oh, yes, absolutely. Where should we start talking about it? I don't know. There's so many things to discuss. Yeah, we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie. Oh, so. so much. I have to say that I am most relieved that it didn't end with her husband's redemption. That's true. Yes. I really like that they had the narrative of the movie condemn the bad behavior. So much. I was really scared that because, you know, he fell in love with her and he was trying to save her, that they, it would end on a happy note for the both of them. And his actions were not excused in any shape or form. And he was an accomplice to his sister's slash lover. <laughs> Creepy you know, cruelty and madness, but he was an accomplice. I thought it was a really nice touch that the hero and the helpers, the ghostly helpers, and the villain were all women. I mean, obviously the husband, Thomas, is there and he's important, but it almost feels like all these plans and machinations are coming from the sister, Lucille, and that she is the guiding hand that's moving things along and he's just sort of along for the ride because he is just really obsessed with this mining technique. He just wants to play with his toys. He's a child. You know, in a way they were both, they both had stunned development because they were trapped in their attic. So they were children of abuse too. I was also getting a really heavy V.C. Andrews vibe. <laughs> oh yeah, the children in the attic. Oh, totally. I actually thought that she was 
his wife. I was curious if I was like the very first scene where she's sitting there and they walk in together and she appears and I'm like, oh, is he, is he married already? Yeah. Well, congratulations, movie. You did it. And I also think that Jessica Chastain just knocked it out of the park. She's amazing. I quite liked Edith. She's one of those quietly strong heroines that I like a lot. She's independent. She's smart. But she still has feelings. For a film directed by a dude, this had a lot of really well-rounded, robust female characters. Even the ghosts that show up get to have kind of their own personalities. And I think probably the ghost scenes where once you're clear what's happening and who the ghosts are, were some of like some of the most emotionally effective. Absolutely. The one with the baby. Mm-hmm. The film was, like, consistently creepy. Oh, my God, so much. <laughs> but it never got, like, explicitly jump scare-ish. I think there were maybe, like, one or two moments that they did that. But it wasn't so much about scaring the, the viewer as it was about scaring the character. At the same time, though, it was really interesting how she wasn't that scared. She was more intrigued and wanting to find out the truth. So she, she was, like, a mini detective. It felt really cohesive. I never felt, like, bored or confused. But I really did like Edith a whole lot. At the very beginning, we see her writing a book. And I thought it was a super nice touch that the publisher dismissed her story and wanted her to add a love story. And so she was like, I have to type this. And and cause she was going to disguise her gender. Exactly. And in the end, she actually succeeds. Yeah, she does. I was really happy about the little outro so there are a lot of things to recommend to this film. I think my favorite part was the fact that Del Toro centers the female relationships more than he centers the heterosexual relationship or the men in the narrative. The men are just kind of incidental there. Even when even when Alan comes to save her, she ends up saving him. And there's a lot of conversations between Edith and Lucille that aren't about dues or just about things. Like, they talk about the house, they talk about Lucille's mother, and this movie, like, hella passes the Bechdel-Wallace test. I was like, good job, Del Toro, good work. So really, the main villain here isn't Thomas at all, it's Chastain. Like, they're the stars of the film, Chastain and Wazakowska, so that's super... Super neat. I would add one other thing that really made the movie for me, which was it's the fact that it's so visually stunning. Oh my god, it's so pretty. It's beautiful. It has it's all in tones of green and red, and that really works for me. It kind of like in a way reminded me of Moulin Rouge, for example, and Great Expectations, the one with Gunnar Paltrow and Ethan Hawke. Another one that reminded me of Dracula, Bram Stoker's Dracula. The usage of shadows, the usage of colors, the beautiful designs, the beautiful clothes. Oh, I was completely enamored with that aspect of the movie. With the set design to the house was absolutely amazing. I think my favorite con- like contrast was the red that they used for the ghosts and for being a metaphor for blood, obviously. They used this red clay as a metaphor for blood. And I was like, oh, how nice that you reflected the story that Edith was writing. Very clever, Del Toro, very clever. The very last scenes where you had all the red clay staining the snow were so beautiful. And the last scene, too, with the 
black ghost playing the piano. The one thing that made me go, oh, well, this is an accurate period piece, was the fact that the whole plot hinges on the dad. He is really suspicious of Thomas and Lucille, so he has them investigated, and he finds out, you know, not good things about them, and he confronts them with them. They're after Edith's money. Thomas really, really needs Edith to marry him, so the easiest way to do that is to get the father out of the way. My question is, and I know the answer, it's just like, why didn't he just tell Edith the truth? He loved her, but he didn't respect her. Really, obviously, the whole movie hinges on the fact that he dies and Edith has to go to this faraway country and live in this creepy house with her new husband. So if that had happened, the whole movie would be ruined if he had told her. It's a nice nod to the fact that she was clever and, and independent in her own way, but she was still under the control of men in ways that she couldn't get out of. Yes. Not only her father, but also the publisher. And so, yay for historical accuracy and, like, nuance, but also, boo, father, why didn't you just trust, like, why didn't you just trust her? And the fact that he was like, break her heart, I was like, how, dude? But I thought that was really well done, because the way that he decided to break her heart was by telling her that she was a horrible writer. He brushed her off, and I was like, oh, man, this sucks, okay. But then he was like, wait, no. We're gonna, I'm gonna tell you about your writing. I'm like, no! Oh god, no! Don't do it! Yeah, that rent right, right through to her heart. Oh, that was rough. That was rough. But I also thought it was really smart. Well, he is an emotional, manipulative person. How many space bees do you want to give this movie? I think I want to give it five. Me too. I really liked it. And I didn't expect to be here in this position giving this movie I was not that interested in five space bees. But wow, I'm really impressed. I'm happy because I recommended that we watch it. Good job, Anna. Mm-hmm. Bat in the back. How many space bees do we give to Tom Hilderstun and his butt? Uh, two. Am I to understand with this that you do not find Tom Hilderstun attractive in any way, shape, or form? Correct. I do not know that we can keep going. He's fine. He looks fine. He seems like a super nice guy, and he's really nice to his fans. But I just don't... I don't... I'm sorry. Oh, Marinade! He's lovely. I think that Tom Hiddleston was a little ruined for me because I came into the Marvel Cinematic Universe fandom, and Loki was this huge thing. Like, everybody wanted to write the redemption fic. Like, the level of apology that Loki got because he was attached to this very attractive actor. And I guess I just don't ship bad guys. So that's why, probably, that I'm not super crazy about... I will admit that he has been one of the most effective... Marvel villains, and I'm really hoping they bring him back as a villain in the series because he's been super great. He is a great actor. He's very, very good in everything I've ever seen him in. Yes, that is true. I just don't want to blow him. Hocus Pocus is a 1993 American comedy horror film directed by Kenny Ortega, and it stars Bette Midler, Kathleen Jimmy, and Sarah Jessica Parker. And I love Hocus Pocus a whole lot. I'm giving it five space bees right now. 
Okay. I know you do not love it as much. I wouldn't say that. Really, I really like this movie. I wonder, did you watch this when when you were growing up? Then was that another The Mighty Ducks scenario? I think so. Yeah, I think I I think in fact I watched it when it first like the first time it ever aired on TV or on on the Disney Channel. I think I saw it that time. Okay, so this movie came out in 1993. I was 17 years old, so I think, again, I missed the boat. I don't remember it coming out in Brazil. It might have, but I really don't remember. I've never watched it. I didn't even know it existed until Thea told me about it, like, two years ago. And I watched for the Book Smugglers Halloween week, and I really enjoyed it. And then, so now I watch it for the second time. I don't. I was never that kid who was like, watch age-appropriate stuff. I was all over the place with my media consumption. I would watch stuff for kids and like really enjoy it. I watch stuff for kids now and really enjoy it. Me too. It was just when I was like 16, 17 that I had that moment where, oh, I'm too grown up for this. I never went through that you moment. You never. I skipped that moment. I ne- I, no, I skipped it. I was just like, fuck it, I like this. I'm going to like it, whether you want to. I think it's because I didn't have a lot of friends. Well, I had a bunch of asshole friends and an asshole boyfriend at the time. And I was not supposed to watch things that were beneath me. Well, I mean, I guess it was the benefit of me having mostly guy friends. Because like I didn't, they didn't come over and hang out at my house, really. And I saw them at school. And listen, they were going to mock me over like liking cartoons when they were like... Flipping play in Magic the Gathering. <laughs> P.S. That they wouldn't let me play with them because I was a girl. Assholes. Anyway, back to Hocus Pocus. It's a great movie. I actually really, really loved it. I think on second viewing, I liked it more. I loved this film so much. It makes me so happy. Uh, although, this time around, this whole virgin thing is super weird from where I'm sitting <laughs> right now. Because... It's culturally built up to be like this tangible thing that you could use to cause things to happen. And I'm just kind of like, virginity is a social construct. Now I'm kind of like, I'm coming at from it like the feminist critique of Hocus Pocus where virginity is like a social construct and it's ridiculous to think that a candle, a magic candle, can like tell whether you fuck somebody or not. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's silly. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a silly premise. And it's also silly because... Although in a way it's cool that it's the boy who is the virgin, but at the same time he's mocked for it, and we are all supposed to laugh because haha, he's a virgin. He's like a teenager. Of course he is. It's fine. Of course, it's something to be ashamed of. Also, the sexual humor in this film is kind of is like hella hardcore for this being like a kids movie and a Disney movie too, and it really makes me go, wow, the Disney Channel was kind of edgy because, like, there's a moment where the sisters are getting on the bus and the guy was like, where can I take you? And Winifred is like, we desire children. And the bus driver's like, well, that may take me a few tries. But I'm like, whoa! (laughs) Dude! He leers at them and catcalls them and wow. The witches actually scared me a lot as a kid. Oh, when I was younger. And I mean, I got the comedy, but some of the things they would say like, oh, they were going to eat kids. And one of them sucked on a spider while hiding. And I saw that scene again. I'm like, no, I can't handle it. I can't handle it. The movie has this balance of making them funny, but also like really creepy and lurking and ominous. It has a really great balance. And I think part of that is basically Bette Midler being the greatest, like, an actual revelation. (laughs) 
if somebody tells me they watch this movie and don't sing along with Bette Midler's musical number, uh, they're lying. I put a spell on you. Everybody sings along with that musical number. Everybody. Yes, absolutely. I even I even talked about that on Twitter. It's very catchy. I really like that song. I just really like Bette Midler. Period. I I love her and everything she's in. I really liked Sarah Jessica Parker in this. She was hilarious. Why am I cursed with such dumb sisters or something? And she's like, just lucky, I guess. I'm just like, oh my god, I died. <laughs> but what makes the movie so great for me is the brother and sister relationships. Because that's what, that's the driving force, right? In the film, they pair up with Allison, who is like extra protective. Yes, and she's really cool too. I really liked her. Like, she was never overtly sexualized. And when she, when the characters did it to her, it was like, it was a joke on them. Like, at the very beginning, where Danny is telling Allison that Max really likes her boobs, that she's being sexualized by Max, but the movie's making fun of Max for doing it. Like, the romance was just super sweet. Yeah. Like, it was a very weird contrast to, like, the very core sexual humor that the sisters, uh, the Sanderson sisters, got when they were out and about in the world. Um, uh, then, like, at the very end, there's these, the movie just, like, hits the pedal, like, on the, like, the horror portion of the comedy horror, because they trap the sisters in, like, a... Like a furnace, yeah. And they close the door, and then they watch in the window as these sisters burn up. They, they, and then they gleefully dance outside afterwards. Yeah. I was like, this got dark! Oh my god, these kids just watch these women burn to death. No, not to mention that they actually left the two boys inside the cages when they left the house, too. I know. I was like, like, are you not going to let them go? Come on, dude. No, no. Max is like, fuck you guys. (laughs) (laughs) And then later on, so when he wakes up, the boyfriend or whatever that she killed because he, she, I don't remember why now, but basically she wakes up a dead boyfriend that she had sewn his mouth shut. And makes this zombie chase the kids around the city. Which, by the way, is a thing that men used to do to women to shut them up. And I actually visited a place here in England where they had a mask that they used to gag women here in medieval times. Women were accused of being witches for talking too much. Oh my god. I know. That's an undertone of this film that I did not catch. Yeah, exactly. And at the very end of the movie, he becomes their ally, which I really, I like how he just immediately gets adopted and they all call him Billy and they're best friends. It's so sweet. (laughs) Oh, his name was Billy. At the at the very end, like he ta- he steals Max's mouth and cuts his mouth open to scream at Winifred. And, like one of the things he says, I like I, ro- I forgot that he did it. I like I was watching this. And I just rolled off my couch laughing so hard because he was like, "You buck tooth mop riding firefly from hell," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god!" I just it was so funny. It was so funny. <laughs> laughed so hard. I needed this movie. I really needed this movie. I needed to laugh this much, and I can't go anywhere without talking about the cat Binks. it was so nice because she was like with him you were gonna be my cat and then my children's cats and then their children's cats and we'd be with our family forever but then he doesn't well he goes to hang out with his own sister she can adopt a cat i really hope i like i really want some thick of this movie now where she gets to adopt her own cat and becomes a witch Ah. 
And then because she's a witch, learn to talk to her cat in cat language. Somebody, somebody wrap me this fic. Or I could probably just go to Kay and be like, hey, can you find me some Pocus Pocus fic? <laughs> because she's so good at finding fic. I just love this movie. Five Space Bees. I would give it five Space Bees too. I really like it. That's really a surprise to me because I did not think you were going like, to, as I was watching this, I did not think you were going to watch this movie. I was like, Anna's going to come to me tomorrow and she's going to be like, Renee, stop making me watch these stupid movies from your childhood that are terrible. No, this actually is one of the best ones that we've watched so far. And it's definitely not a Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So far, your childhood movies trump my childhood movies. It's okay, Anna. We're going to watch The Bad News Bears and maybe things will be okay. Or maybe not. The Family Plot by Sherry Priest is a 2016 book from Tor Books about a salvage operation run by a family who gains access to an old house that is super haunted. (laughs) I didn't read the boy before I went in, and so I was kind of like, oh, this is a book about salvage, okay. Oh, shit, this house is haunted. They they just bought this haunted house from this old lady who didn't tell it was haunted. Don't southern houses have, like, a clause where you have to (laughs) tell people something that's haunted? You know, one of the things that is really interesting about this book is that because they are in the salvage business and they are used to going to old houses, they are actually used to ghosts. It didn't come as a surprise that the house was haunted. It just comes with the territory. The fact that the ghosts there were evil as fuck was a surprise. The sad part about this book is that it's not at all scary for me once the ghosts make an actual appearance. I shat myself reading this book. From beginning to end. Uh, it totally fell apart for me, like, a quarter away from the end. It just fell apart. I just could not stop reading this. I was obsessing about it. I also could not sleep. I had to wait for Russell to fall asleep so I could turn on the bedside lamp and sleep with the lights on. Wow, you had a totally different reaction than me. I was so scared by this book. So scared by this book. Everything about it terrified me. I wonder if it's because I've read more stories like this. Because I come from the South and I kind of grew I grew up on like poltergeist stories. Because in the South, everything is haunted. Like the book makes that point. Uh, so I think I just grew up on ghost stories like this. So once I got like a quarter of the wind, I knew exactly what was going to happen. I knew what was coming. Everything that was going to happen next was signposted. Yes, it was. This is what scares me the most about horror. This book had all the hallmarks of stereotypical horror. You had the door that won't open. The cemetery that nobody knows that there is a cemetery. The attic. Everything is there. It's signposted, like you say. And that's what makes it terrifying for me. Because I know it's coming. Whenever there is a horror movie and you see a rocking chair, you know that fucker is going to rock, right? Mm-hmm. Every time I see one of those, I am already scared. That's how that's how horror works for me. I think when things are too familiar, like the foreshadowing for the scary things coming up, it's supposed to like raise your attention. But for me, it kind of decreases it because I'm so familiar with the trope that I already know exactly what form it's going to take, and so it just falls apart for me. And I think that's just me, because of the fact that I was raised on a lot of Southern literature and ghost stories. 
I'm really glad it worked for you, though, because that's great. I'm really glad you got to be scared. Good job. This is the thing that scares me the most, is the ghost stories. They fucking terrify me. Oh, really? You're afraid of ghosts? I am afraid of ghosts. Did I ever tell you about a true ghost story that happened to me? I don't believe the ghosts are a thing, but okay. Okay, let me tell you this story. I grew up in Brazil, and in Brazil, you do have a religion called spiritualism. Basically, people believe in spirits, and then they are there and believe in reincarnation and things like that. So I grew up in this religion. Every Monday evening, we would go to the center. That's why you call it the center. And then you have all mediums standing up, receiving spirits, and you would talk to them. So my sister and my mother are both trained as medium. Okay, so they both receive spirits right now. I don't believe in any of that anymore. At the same time, if I don't believe it, then my mother and my sister are crazy. So it's a little bit complicated. Anyway, there was this one night in my apartment. My mother has a bedroom at the end of the hallway. My bedroom was in the middle. And then my sister was on the other end of the hallway. Everybody was asleep. And then I only hear a scream and then people running. And then my mother and my sister burst into my bedroom. And then they tell me what happened. My mother was asleep. She woke up. There was a man standing by her bed, looking down at her. And then she woke up. She decided to run to my sister's bedroom. When she got there, my sister was awake, staring at the same man. And then he decided to run to my bedroom to make sure that I was okay. Either my mother and my sister are fucking crazy. Or ghosts exist. Or they were having... A mass hallucination. There are mushrooms who call it the cause of that. I don't think they ate mushrooms that evening. In fact, we don't even have mushrooms in Brazil. <laughs> they fucking terrify me, those two. Like, I'm talking to you right now, and I'm just like, I'm sitting. I am so tense because I don't want to look behind me or to the side and look out the side of the window because it's so dark. There's no ghosts around you, I promise. I know that. I know that. Deep in my heart, I know that. I want you to read House of Leaves with me so you can see me have a fucking nervous breakdown. Can we read that for next year's Halloween? We can, yes, because it's 700 pages, so it'll take us that long. I've always wanted to read that. Let's do that. So what I really liked about the family plot itself is that Dahlia had a really good relationship with her... I didn't really get how it worked, but she treats him like a nephew. And Bobby... Those were like the very best part of the story, both the relationships between the people who were alive and also the relationships between the ghosts, because there was just the, these very complicated, familiar relationships. Dahlia makes a point when she and Bobby are fighting. She was like, well, I could fire him, but then he would go and tell dad and dad's a soft touch and he would rehire him. And then Bobby would know that I, that I can't touch him. And I'm like, oh God, that's too real. Yeah. That's true. The relationship at the center of the novel were really interesting. I also quite liked that there was no romance in here. I know, that was really refreshing. I was like, I was expecting her to hook up with Brad, but no, never happened. Brad lost his mind at some point. He was you with ghosts. Totally shit him. Well, it was the first time that he saw them, right? All the others had seen them, heard of them, interacted with ghosts in some shape or form. But for him, it was the first time. It was his first true savage work. That was interesting. So what do you think happened in the end? This book so much wasn't so much scary, scary for me as it was psychological re-abandonment and failure of romantic love. The house was haunted, but what happens at the end, I think, is that Brad has the camera recording, and I think what happens is when the woman returns 
the camera. I think what happens is that the ghost is trapped, and then once Dahlia plays it, uh, that's all. That's now the house is haunted, not Dahlia's haunted specifically. I thought that because they destroyed the house, they thought that it was going to make the ghosts free, and it did in a way. It made them free to leave the house and go wherever they wanted to. And in that case, that the ghost really like glued to Dahlia because she thought that they had the same kind of like pain, I guess. They were both treated badly by men. Yeah, they were both angry. On one hand, like I thought that that parallel wasn't made enough. Like I really liked it once it developed and we figured out what was happening. But I also think that it came a little too late for me to really invest in it. I was just ti- I was just tiring to like read through all the scary stuff that's happening. The book wants you to think it's scary, but you're like, oh, okay. I already knew, like, because I like I said, the book signposted what was going to happen to Dahlia early on. In a way that was supposed to be foreshadowing, but just became, oh, well, okay, now we know what's going to happen to her by the end of the book. All right, didn't see that coming at all. Like I said, I've read a lot of ghost stories. So the lesson here is that if you haven't read one billion ghost stories yet, go and read this one. If you have, you probably will not find this new or intriguing or scary. I just found it more effective as a psychological horror story than like a jump scare horror story. Right. For me, it was everything was scary about it. And I just wanted something scary, scary. So I just didn't get what I wanted from this book specifically. But I really did like the, I really did like the end, though. I thought that was a very nice touch. I would give this book three space bees. Ugh, I would give it four space bees. It's fine. We're allowed to disagree. And, and now you can be free of ghosts for the next year. Thank you so much. <laughs> Okay, it's time for recommendations. Anna, what do you got for us this week? I've got a TV show from HBO that just won the Emmy Awards this year. It's The People vs. O.J. Simpson about the O.J. Simpson trial. It has a look at the U.S. justice system as well as all the contextual racism in the country as background for this one huge trial. I was in Brazil when this whole thing happened. And of course, I was so removed from the context that I didn't know half the things that happened. I knew two things about this. One is that he was deemed not guilty when he probably is guilty. And two, the gloves. That was the only thing that I remember about it. And the TV show is excellent. It's riveting. It's so well acted. And it's absolutely fascinating. I highly recommend it. What's your rec? My recommendation is a Steve Tony story. It's called Do I Want to Know by Jen the Sweetie. And uh, the summary basically sums it up. The bottom of the summary says, They also told him Tony Stark was dangerous, but Steve Rogers once jumped on top of a grenade. So really, it's all relative. And it's just a story about trust and falling in love without realizing you're doing it and miscommunication. So many emotions. It's good for me. And one day people are going to be like, Renee, are you ever going to write anything other than Steve Tony fanfic? And my answer to that is probably not.
episode 60 is in the bag. Hooray! Hey, I hope we did not scare you all that much. We could scare them a little bit. That'd be okay. Our music this week is by Boxcat Games, and our instrumentals are by Chuki Music. Our art was made by Ira, and you can commission them at justira.tomo.com or on Twitter at It's Just Ira. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, and you know you do, we would really appreciate it. It definitely helps more people discover our show. We also have a newsletter, and you can subscribe to for more cool stuff and uplifting messages from Renee. You can go and subscribe on our website, fanbillhappyhour.com. And if you want to ask us questions for us to answer on Question Tuesdays, you can email us at any time at fangirlhappyhour at gmail.com. For more adventures during the week, you can follow us on Twitter at fangirlpodcast. I'm on Twitter at Renee. And I'm at Booksmugglers. And if you want to read along with us for our next episode, we're going to be discussing The Owl Escape by N.K. Jemison, Pretty Deadly Volume 2 by Emma Rios and Kelly Sudokonik, and The Race by Nina Allen. And as always, Space Bees, thanks so much for listening. See you next episode. Bye! a very not very happy yay and <laughs> try again okay sorry <laughs> <laughs> right